Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another enigmatic episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who fell into an upholstery machine but is now fully recovered. Ryan, what's up? <laughs> into an upholstery machine? An upholstery machine. Now you're recovered. Huh. That's what happens when you fall into a, an upholstery machine. It's the recover. You're covered. Oh, my God. How'd you oh. not get that? Oh, man, because I literally was just listening to a podcast last night about essentially like having spirits and otherworldly powers kind of look after you. And one of the stories was this kid who fell into some kind of machinery that normally like there's almost no way you would survive it. Uh huh. And he did. And I was like, is this some kind of weird like synchronicity where you listen to the same thing I did? <laughs> I was. <laughs> no, it's just a pun. <laughs> Yeah. No, I did. I was listening to a podcast that uh, it was a true crime podcast that ha- took place, I think, in 1972. I know it was the 70s that uh, one of the characters involved in the storyline, uh, a true storyline, was also named Dorcas. Like, how many Dorcases are out there? We've talked about three. Not enough. <laughs> Well, there's more, no more than three, but less than enough. That's the answer for now. At least nowadays, anyone that grows up named Dorcas would be like a total badass by the time they get out of high school. Yeah, it's like a boy named Sue. Yeah, they're exactly. totally going to be tough and definitely. That song never caught on, did it? A girl named Dorcas? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was Woody Guthrie probably that sang that. There you go. <laughs> Dating ourselves. Ugh. All right. Well, um, I did want to make a little announcement on here. All right. So I've recorded a few uh, true crime kind of episodes, little like 30 minute kind of more story driven, uh, not so much discussion about paranormal crimes, occult crimes, satanic crimes, stuff like that. And the one that we put out uh, most recently at this time would have been Saturday night about the Canadian cannibal Vincent Lee who was a regular mild-mannered man riding on a Greyhound bus in Canada out of nowhere got up and cut somebody's head off stabbing them repeatedly in the neck and then started eating pieces of their flesh including their eyes. So, is this man still in prison? I mean, we're talking Canada. Find out on that episode of Sinister Souls. But, Ryan, tell them what they need to know tonight. If you've listened before, you know what you need to know, but I'll I'll tell you anyway, because we're patient, and we love you. Yes. If you want to help us out, you can do so by liking, subscribing, commenting, rating, whatever it is you can do, wherever it is you listen. Uh, But the most helpful thing is to share the show with somebody that you know and who you think might like it, because it's obviously the best way for anything to grow. I mean, look at uh, you can look at some of the movies lately, like uh, what was it? Sound of Freedom. Still have to watch it. It's doing Yeah, but it's supposedly doing incredibly well despite having almost no marketing because word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I like Jim Caviezel, so I might have to go see it. Anyway, if you want to get in touch with us and let us know what you want to hear next or what we could be doing better or maybe we're pronouncing the name Dorcas wrong (laughs) 
<laughs> you can do that at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast, YouTube at cryptique podcast. You can find out what we're hawking at crypticpodcaststore.com and check out our friends over at Parabox at the link in the show notes. Watch, we're going to find out that the name Dorcas is actually something beautiful like Dorisai or yeah. you know, just a weird spelling. But anyway, all right, well, what are we getting into tonight? Oh, tonight. We were talking about the Philadelphia experiment. Have you guys heard of it? Yeah, it's where they it's where <laughs> they use Provel cheese instead of uh, cheese whiz and the <laughs> cheese steaks, right? Uh, I was gonna say it's where they put Vaseline on all the street poles so people wouldn't climb it <laughs> after the Super Bowl, but or they had to check people for batter- D batteries on the way into the sports stadium so they didn't <laughs> throw them at the players on the field. <laughs> Well, those are all close. It's actually a wild story told by a former merchant sailor named Carl M. Allen, who claimed to have witnessed this experiment. He said it happened around October 28th of 1943 at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. According to him, the U.S. Navy was trying to make the USS Eldridge, a destroyer escort ship, become invisible. Well, let's talk about that real quick. What do you mean by escort ship? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My understanding is that destroyers usually guarded an area or escorted, like, aircraft carriers and things like that. Oh, we're not talking about hookers. My bad. No, these are not not ships going up and down the Mississippi (laughs) by, like, Sauge and things like that. I thought maybe that's how the uh, politicians had their people shipped in for their eyes wide shut parties. My bad. All right, Mm. go ahead. Escort ships. Yeah, could be. All right, so this tale really kind of took on a life of its own around 1955 when Allen sent a book with his handwritten notes about the experiment to a Navy research group. He even sent letters to an author of UFO books about it. But here's the thing. Most people think Allen just made the whole thing up. Or most, according to some of the research we've been doing. (laughs) There have been many different versions of the story in books and movies, and they do not all necessarily match up. And by the way, the U.S. Navy just say it never happened. They point out that the details don't match what's known about the USS Eldridge and that the science behind the story doesn't really make sense. But do we want to get started with the origins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the origins. So... As we mentioned, the whole Philadelphia experiment story really kicked off in late 1955 when this guy, Carl M. Allen, sent an anonymous package with a strange Happy Easter label. Inside was a book by Morris K. Jessup called The Case for the UFO Unidentified Flying Objects. And it had all these handwritten notes in three different shades of blue ink. It kind of seemed like three people, one of them named Jemmy, were having a chat in the margins. They called themselves gypsies and went on about UFO propulsion theories, aliens, and how Jessup might be on to their advanced tech. Their writing style? I think this is, you know, a clinical definition here of their writing (laughs) style when we say super quirky with weird capitalizations and punctuation throughout the meandering discussions. That that was my clinical analysis, very <laughs> professional. <laughs> well, it would be 
odd to have a book where people are seemingly writing notes to each other in the margins and obviously a a book about alien spaceship propulsion and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. well but what's cool is they hinted at the philadelphia experiment in their notes alan started writing letters to jessup using both his real name and this alias carlos miguel alande that's probably something if we put the FBI on they could figure out who it was but anyway Mm -hmm. he warned Jessup about probing too deep into UFO levitation stuff and dropped a story about some crazy science experiments at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in 1943 you want to jump in? Sure. Alan claimed he saw it all go down when he was on the SS Andrew Furaseth I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that. I really just wanted to make you say that word. (laughs) (laughs) He had, uh, he said a ship turned invisible and then bam, teleported to Norfolk, Virginia and back. In this story, essentially a destroyer class ship successfully became invisible for a brief time before pulling a night crawler. And this is something I wanted you to read (laughs) since I wrote this part. Uh, This is X-Men, not Fresno, (laughs) night crawler and bamfing between these locations. So essentially becoming invisible, teleporting, being spotted by the SS Andrew Furaseth, and then going back. And the crew had all kinds of different issues. Some of them went insane, some reported being paralyzed or immobilized, and some reportedly were rendered intangible or even disappeared. And then didn't they also, and there may be stuff in here about this, but some of the men, they were actually, like, became part of the ship. Yeah, that is, it's part of later accounts that, yeah, that we'll get into. All right, go ahead. When Jessup pressed Alan for more proof, Alan got pretty vague and mentioned a Philadelphia newspaper article that nobody's been able to find, and I couldn't really find referenced in you know, the notes or the research that I was doing for this. Yeah. Uh, but in 1957, Jessup was called into the office of Naval research and they had an annotated version of his book that looked to him a lot like Alan's handwriting. Two Naval officers, Captain Sidney Sherby and commander George W. Hoover got curious about the whole thing. Hoover dug deep, but couldn't find any solid evidence about the invisibility experiment, despite a reported, you know, pretty deep personal interest on Hoover's part. Then, President Austin N. Stanton of the Vero Manufacturing Corporation got hooked on the story himself. His company ended up making copies of Jessup's books with all of Allen's scribbles, which became known as the Varro edition. This edition showcased writings from Jemmy, as addressed by the other writers and who used a blue-violet colored ink, Mr. A, which is said to be Allen by Jessup, and who wrote in a blue ink, and Mr. B who is distinguished by using a blue-green kind of shade of ink. So very um, considerate of them to use slightly different colored inks. Yeah, just a little bit. Like you could have used red or black or whatever, but hey. No. But unfortunately, life took a tough turn for Jessup. He struggled with publishing any more books on UFOs. He lost his publisher and had... uh, number of personal issues and sadly he took his own life in florida in 1959 that was before the clintons right that probably i'm sure there were a few around but yeah. all right as for alan uh some people tried to get more information from him but he was pretty elusive one reporter from alan's hometown of new kensington pennsylvania 
found some of Alan's annotated documents and books when visiting his family. Uh, but people said that Alan had a brilliant mind, but also hinted that he might have been kind of a trickster. You know, he might have tried to deceive people purposefully. Hmm. But yeah, now we can get into some of the repetitions of the story and how it how it you know just progressed. It's almost like a game of telephone, kind of where the story builds on itself. Yeah. In 1965, Vincent Gaddis released a book called Invisible Horizons, True Mysteries of the Sea. He recounted the whole story of the Varro annotations, detailing the experiment's weird events and particular details. As we fast forward to 1978, we've got authors George E. Simpson and Neil R. Berger writing a novel called Thin Air. It's set in modern day with a Naval Investigative Service officer piecing together an old invisibility experiment and a conspiracy about matter transmission tech. So that sounds like an interesting one. Yeah. Then 1979. The story got a major boost when Charles Berlitz, the dude famous for his book on the Bermuda Triangle, decided to jump in. And why not? He teamed up with UFO researcher William L. Moore to write... The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility. Well, they painted it as a true story, pulling in strange happenings, missing theories from Einstein, and claims of government cover-up. Guess whose letter they relied on? Yep, the Allende Allen ones that were sent <laughs> to Jessup. So, if you're writing, you know, a fiction book, pull stuff from wherever you want. I don't... Yeah. I don't care. But if you're writing a nonfiction book, I mean, is and obviously we haven't read the book. You know, the book could say, according to Carl M. Allen, this happened. Or it could just kind of present it as a fact, which would be a problem. Let's take a quick break, and then you can tell us about Mr. Moore and Mr. Berlitz. That's right. And uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back, Group Keepers. So, in their book, Moore and Berlitz had a chapter on the force fields of Townsend Brown, highlighting this experimenter and former Navy tech, Thomas Townsend Brown. This guy popped up again in Paul Lavoilette. I'm going to pronounce that and be very pretentious. Lavoilette. <laughs> in this guy's 2008 book, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion. Now, Hollywood got involved in 1984, and there's a time travel movie called The Philadelphia Experiment, directed by Stuart Raffel. The movie introduced the whole tale to a lot of new people who would not have encountered it through, you know, interviews, magazines, UFO books, and things like that. Loads and, of people, I'm sure. Yeah, and although Just it added loads. some, and though it added some, maybe boatloads. Maybe. And though it added some cinematic flair, it you know, stuck to the core components of the the legend as it had kind of become by this point. But the twists weren't over there. In 1989, Alfred Bilek jumps in, saying he was on the USS Eldridge when everything went down. He kept building on his story, even saying in 1990 at the MUFON conference 
the Raffles movie was pretty close to what he remembered from 1943. Violet kept spilling more details on the radio, at events, and even on online forums as those became available. It's kind of odd to think that, you know, this guy was saying this since 1990 and eventually was posting it online. He was, I mean, maybe he was doing like Reddit AMAs or something. Like, hey, I was on the USS Eldridge. Ask me something. One of the problems I have with that is, so this guy went on to speak at conferences, so there's an incentive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I I don't know. I feel like if this were a true story, it, the Navy would have two choices. They could be like, this guy's crazy. We don't know what he's talking about. Or they would say, shut your mouth. Mm-hmm. You want me to get into the synopsis? Sure. Well, the whole idea behind this experiment supposedly spins out from the unified field theory. That's a big brain concept Albert Einstein (laughs) whipped up, trying to connect the dots between electromagnetism and gravity. Essentially, he aimed to squish these forces into one big theory. Now, some stories say that certain mysterious researchers thought that by tweaking this idea, you could use massive electrical generators to bend light. Basically, making things invisible. Now imagine the military perks of that. Naturally, the Navy got all excited and wanted to sponsor this wild experiment. Another version, which nobody's really putting a name to, says that these researchers were taking a deep dive, literally measuring the ocean floor's magnetism and gravity. They apparently got their inspiration from Einstein's attempts to crack the gravity code. And guess what, Ryan? (laughs) <laughs> this this twist ropes in secret Nazi Germany projects aiming for anti-gravity, all masterminded by the SS big shot, Hans Kammler. No one's found a conclusive proper paper trail, but a lot of these tales agree that the USS Eldridge was decked out with some crazy equipment at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard, where it is they kicked off testing in summer 1943 and had some... Uh, interesting results. One trial allegedly made the Eldridge almost invisible, but left this eerie green fog and made the crew all start vomiting. When the ship popped back into view, some sailors were freakishly fused with the metal parts of the ship. One guy's hand was even stuck inside the steel hull after somehow being transported to a lower deck. So imagine that. You're on this ship. You know the military owns you and can do whatever they want with you for the most part Mm -hmm. and you have this green fog surround the ship you know that there's some crazy stuff going on and then all of a sudden you're fused to metal yeah that's insane what else happened to people other sailors just lost their minds completely Some say the Navy stepped in to pivot the experiment, aiming to just make the Eldridge invisible to radar. But big surprise, there's no concrete proof for those tales either. Different versions lock in the experiment date as October 28th of 1943. They paint this wild picture where the Eldridge turns invisible, zips off 200 miles to Norfolk, Virginia, and is spotted by the SS Andrew Furoseth. Then, poof, back in Philly. The stories get darker... When talking about the crew in some of these other versions, some of these tales talk about 
sailors being glued to walls, losing their minds, flipping inside out, or just completely vanishing altogether. Some even say the sailors were brainwashed to keep the whole thing under wraps. Now that could be. That's something that I think, obviously, the military would be into if they could just wipe somebody's memory. And, you know, they uh, had been working on it, I'm sure, since uh, the thought crossed their minds on, you know, how they could keep people quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if they could find a way to do it, yeah. Or maybe they just threaten them and be like, you know, we don't know how this thing works, but we know it does this, so... If you talk, we're going to stick this thing on your house. (laughs) Right. No doubt. All right. Let's get into evidence and research. Because there are issues with some of the research here. So to start, historian Mike Dash had this to say. A lot of folks jumped on the Philadelphia Experiment story bandwagon after Jessup allegedly didn't exactly do a lot of substantial research. Until the late 70s, everyone painted this Allende or Allen guy as some mystery man who was very hard to track down. But a man named Robert Gorman managed to crack the code on who Allende or Allen really was with just a few phone calls and told Fate magazine that Carlos Allende and Carl Allen, who communicated with Jessup, was actually Carl Meredith Allen of New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And we mentioned his hometown before. Uh, and that this guy had a history of mental illness. Hmm. Gorman later said that Alan was a family friend and, quote, a creative, imaginative loner who sent out strange texts and claims. And Sounds quote, enigmatic. Indeed. <laughs> then there's this idea that a lot of what's written is more about the shock value than genuine deep dives. Kind of the stuff that we're talking yeah. about, you know, people dropping down to different decks, getting fused yeah. to the ship, things like that. Uh, Take Burlitz and Moore, for instance. In their book, The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility, they claim they've got the real deal, even transcripts of chats with a scientist from the experiment. But here's the tea. Some say they might have borrowed a bit too much from the book Thin Air, which came out only a year before theirs. And then we've got other issues with misunderstanding some of this evidence and maybe some of the real experiments that happened. Do you want to get into that or do you have other comments first? Well, well, I was just going to say, if I'm trying to disguise my identity, don't use your initials, (laughs) don't use your initials and then don't switch it to like, you know, simple Spanish. Right. I mean, it would be, so your last name is Smith. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to be like, all right, well, my name's Ryan L. Smith, so I'll go by Rionis L. Smithton and expect <laughs> people aren't going to figure out who you are. I mean, that, that to me is kind of a red flag. I mean, I, I think that's accepted as, you know, historical fact, right? But it seems really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these are the kind of guys that couldn't read the first sentence after uh, the experiments and uh, <laughs> or evidence and research. <laughs> well, I mean, and Kim watches a lot of these like true crime shows, and it it seems like quite a few of them either they're caught, mm-hmm. you know, somebody on the run, or they're suspected because their initials match up, or some part of their name still matches up. Because you know they talk about like people often have this 
like desire or drive or whatever to kind of preserve part of their previous identity. It, I mean, yeah. I guess that's like the psychological explanation of it that they want to, they want people to know it's them. Yeah. They want to fuck with people. Yeah. You know, like it's like the whole sigil magic that, you know, the uh, government and corporations and stuff do. It's like, well, I'm going to put a clue out there. I'm not going to tell the truth, but I'm going to put a clue out there. And if you don't find, figure that out it's your fault it's like mm -hmm. the fine print thing right you know mm -hmm. like well <laughs> we said on page 764 in print that you would need a magnifying glass to read that you know by signing this paper you were signing over your house or <laughs> whatever so i don't know i just think that's that's silly so if you guys are ever wanting to do and if you send in a, send us in an email we're not going to use like your real name uh, unless you want us to but yeah just disguise yourself a little bit better you know maybe instead of carlos m alande you go by war booty yeah all right let's talk about misunderstandings <laughs> of the evidence so folks from the fourth naval district have a theory they think the whole philadelphia experiment story might have just been a big misunderstanding of some usual world war ii research going down at the philadelphia naval shipyard one of the ideas floating around is that the stories might have started from some degaussing experiments. Now, these weren't about making ships ghostly invisible, but about making them invisible to magnetic mines. So a magnetic mine is something that would you know, be put up in waters that you're trying to either invade or defend. And basically when a huge metal ship goes by, it's going to set them off and they're going to blow a hole in the hole purposely or or that's their purpose anyway to sink the ship so if you can degauss them you make them either undetectable to magnetic mines or reduce detectability by magnetic mines mm -hmm. another thought is that the tales about floating ships teleporting and the crew stuff might come from some tests on the USS Timmerman. They had this high frequency generator that caused some flashy corona discharges. Also, none of the crew said they felt weird or had any illness from that experiment. None of the crew that came forward anyway. Yeah, none of the ones that weren't brainwashed or threatened with having the machine stuck on their house. <laughs> right. All right. But there's other inconsistencies to the story. We'll find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell us about these timeline inconsistencies. Okay. So here's the deal. The USS Eldridge only got its official commission on August 27th of 1943, and then it was just chilling in New York's port until September. Some say this spooky October experiment happened when the ship was on its first cruise in the Bahamas, but others think that maybe someone messed with the ship's logs or they're still considered top secret. 
Jumping ahead to September of 1996, the Office of Naval Research, or ONR, came out and said, ONR has never conducted investigations on radar and visibility, either in 1943 or at any other time, which I think is probably bullshit. Right, because why wouldn't you? There's no way they weren't. Yeah, I mean, that's a reasonable thing to do, to try to become invisible to radar. Right, that's like a top thing to do, especially... You know, back in what the 40s and 50s, if you could become invisible to radar, you're invisible. Right. Yeah. And another fun fact, ONR wasn't even a thing until 1946. So they're basically using this to try to say that the whole Philadelphia experiment story is just some sci-fi stuff. So they're messing up the timelines intentionally to, you know, kind of add an air of unbelievability to it. I suppose. I suppose that's the way of putting it. Uh, Then in April of 1999, a bunch of Navy veterans who'd been on the USS Eldridge told a Philadelphia newspaper that our ship basically never stopped in Philadelphia. And there's even more proof that's throwing shade on the whole Philadelphia experiment tale. And you can find all these records detailed from World War II reports on the USS Eldridge, which include some 1943 deck log notes all on microfilm if you have the patience for that kind of thing yeah you know at your libraries or whatever else but you can find some of the best stuff on microfilm right i have not used the past a microfiche machine in 20 years I, i don't know that somebody that's under the age of like 35 would be able to do it. it not no, not no, like they wouldn't be able to like physically, you know, maneuver and stuff like that, but they'd just be like, I can't, I can't watch this screen. It's kind of like when you watch a YouTube video from like 2004 and they're yeah. like, Oh, it's shot on 360, And it's like, yeah, it looks like super Mario. And, right. And you just can't watch it. But right. Yeah. And it's like, Oh man, I, I know I told you this, but like when people would come into the bar mm-hmm. and they would go to the little area where we had like the old console set up, mm-hmm. if they looked under 35, I would just follow them mm-hmm. because I knew they weren't going to know how to put like a cartridge in the Super Nintendo or anything. Yeah. And there were kids who were like, what are these wires? It's like, dude. <laughs> yeah. So well, there's no way they'd be able to use a microfiche machine. Yeah, and it almost sounds like this whole Philadelphia experiment is, they're like Fight Club, right? They're like, Navy? I don't even know, what's the Navy? We don't have a Navy, a boat? (laughs) I don't know anything about a boat. That sounds like some crazy conspiracy theory stuff. (sighs) All right, let's get into some alternative explanations. Jacques Vallée, a researcher, talks about something that went down on the USS Ingstrom, which was docked next to the Eldridge back in 1943. They were busy setting up a big electromagnetic field on deck. Why? To try out degaussing, basically a way to make this ship a no-go zone for magnetically triggered mines and torpedoes. This cool tech idea came from a dude named Charles F. Goody. (laughs) He was a commander in the Royal Canadian Naval Volunteer Reserve, and this technology was used widely by a number of navies. Many British ships during World War II, like London's HMS Belfast, had these systems on deck. And you can still see some of it on the Belfast if you 
uh, I don't know where that would be docked, but I'm sure you can find pictures, you know, on Google somewhere if you're interested. But uh, I love that you said dude mm-hmm. because that's what I originally had in there. And then I thought <laughs> that sounded too casual, so I changed it to guy. <laughs> so I love yeah. you went back. Oh, it's a little bit more <laughs> uh, formal. But, yeah. but the HMS Belfast. And the HMS Belfast is still uh, apparently on display as like a museum ship mm-hmm. on on the Thames between London Bridge and Tower Bridge. Uh, it refers to the area as the Queen's Walk. But yeah, it's apparently still there and some of this equipment is still present, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to look back. And, you know, I don't take a lot of uh, museum tours. We've got a, a couple pretty decent museums here in St. Louis for free, but no ships that I'm aware of. But it would be nice to be, you know, on a tour and then be like, well, well, what's that? Oh, well, that's this. Oh, well, everyone said that's not real. So <laughs> you uh-huh. should have taken that off before you put it on display but <laughs> so they still use degaussing today because they still use magnetically triggered mines and it's going to be like that probably for quite some time until these mines either lose their ability to detonate or sink or or whatever uh, but it still doesn't make ships invisible to radar but if you haven't looked up a picture of a stealth navy ship they are insane looking and really cool. And I highly suggest you do that. Mm. Um, so valet thinks that maybe tales about the USS Engstrom's degaussing thing got mixed up and stretched out over time, which could have added to the Philadelphia experiment mythos. Valet also mentions a vet from the USS Engstrom who shares an interesting idea. He says the ship might have zipped from Philly to Norfolk and back in just one day by sneaking through the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal and Chesapeake Bay, a route only naval ships could use back then. So, you want to wrap this one up? Yeah, this this route was kept on the down low because German submarines were causing a lot of problems back then for ships on the East Coast, whether they were military or coast guard or merchant ships so the navy was trying to be sneaky and moving ships to this canal to you know keep away from them because it was an area that they could control so i guess it is Mm. possible that the ship could have moved in a day you know and been and been seen by the ss uh andrew and then come back but who knows and there is another story that i found where and I don't think we mentioned it here that Alan claims that he saw somebody disappear in a bar, like a hmm. Navy guy who was supposed to be on the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the vets who they talked to, who Valet talked to for this story, said that he believes he's the guy that Alan saw disappearing in this bar. The hmm. story he tells is that after a bar fight, some of the friendly bar staff who knew that he was too young to really be in there and be doing what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Helped him duck out before any police showed up. And to cover it up, they were just like, oh, he just vanished. I don't even know where he went. So that, you know, kind of little trickery might have kind of added to one of Alan's stories that he 
told during all of this. And I'm sure there's a lot of story. I mean, like like we said, there's different tellings. There's what two different mm-hmm. books, a movie. You know, people claiming that they're on the ship. People claiming that they're on the ship that saw, you know, the Eldridge. Mm-hmm. So lots of lots of stuff out there. But what do you think? Do you have any closing thoughts? This is a pretty short one, but I like this. This was a. It's like this is a good classic story that I that we needed to do. I think this is a good story because it illustrates like we did like three hours on the Salem witch trials because Mm -hmm. there was a ton of evidence out there. And when there's kind of scant evidence, like in this case, it's, I almost feel like the Philadelphia experiment is propped up to be a lot bigger and a lot more impactful than what it it really should have been i i feel like there's just not enough here to definitely say conclusively that this happened but i'm not saying that they didn't try it i'm not saying it didn't happen i'm not saying it couldn't have happened i just think that there's just not much smoke at all i feel like everything is super exaggerated and it's just one what we know as an implausibility or impossibility it has one after another after another after another and i think that if this technology worked to teleport things or people we would be seeing it by now you know what i mean i don't i mean this was a long 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 time ago and i still haven't heard anything about teleporting yeah it's yeah we hear a lot of stuff about like what they're able to do in the military you know, weird technologies and things that they have. I mean, the military has stated that their goal is to be 30 years ahead of any other military on the planet. Mm-hmm. And my dad was in the military in the 70s. And he was, he told, I remember him telling me in the 90s, or early 2000s, like, you know, we had stuff back then that's only just now coming to the consumer market. Mm-hmm. You know, he obviously can't tell me anything about it, but he was like, yeah, it's way, way more advanced than anything mm-hmm. that you have available to you like best buy but right. yeah you would definitely think that after 80 like years 80 almost. years yeah just about 80 years in october that that it would have had some more significant impact than it did the thing for me that gives me a little bit of pause that this might be a real thing is that i feel like if it was just totally made up I feel like the military would be like, oh, yeah, we can do that. Dude, what's going to happen is you're going to fuck with the United States. And all of a sudden, there's going to be an aircraft carrier and battleships and planes that just appear over your town or your city or your whatever and just obliterate you and then disappear and end up right back where they started in the United States. Because if you could convince people of that, you would shut people up. You know what I mean? Like, oh, shut the fuck up. We're going to have a whole fucking Navy fleet in your shipping zone in 30 seconds if you're not quiet. And 
I just, I feel like they would have, you know, why wouldn't you? Because they use everything they possibly can. You know, it's like if you're fighting, you're getting, getting ready to get into a fight with somebody at a bar and they're like, you know, I've killed three people. You're going to be like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll just okay. go home then. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're telling me this why. Yeah, so I think they would have propped it up if it were real and, and say, you know, we can have troops just appear out of thin air at your embassy, you know, in your bedroom, whatever. Mm-hmm. We could send, you know, this is like the ultimate ninja move. We could send someone from, you know, the deck of a ship in Chesapeake Bay and they appear in the, you know, bedroom of Castro or something like that. So, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? You think there's any chance that any of it is real at the time? I think they were probably doing experiments. I mean, it was a time mm-hmm. where like technology advanced so unbelievably much in like a 40-year, 30-year period because of the world wars. Yeah. I don't see why they wouldn't have experimented with it. Now, I don't know if they created a green fog that caused the ship to like partially disappear and made everybody sick, but I mean, they could have they could have, you know, electrified something and they were I mean, we used arsenic in wallpaper for a long time until we found yeah. out like, oh, when it gets hot, it releases. So, I mean, they could have mm-hmm. they could have had some kind of like special paint on there that was supposed to stop radar signals or whatever. And when they electrified it, it you know made people get sick. I mean, some of the stories could be true, but not necessarily support the thing that people wanted to support. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I have no doubt that they were doing experiments. And I can also buy that, you know, there was like weird equipment and generators and coronal discharges and things like that. But I don't know, man. I I don't think that they were, they might have wanted to try to teleport. Although even, God, see, I'm going back and forth because even in these accounts, the teleportation was an accident. Right. They were trying to somehow make the ship invisible and they teleported by mistake. (laughs) Yeah. Um... I don't know, man. I mean, now all I can think of is Bob Ross. But So what happens, Ryan, if you are touching metal with a bare hand and a an electrical charge is sent through that metal? Where does it go? I mean, it's going to go to ground through whatever way it can, if it's through your body or not. It's always safer. I mean, the Navy teaches you to work with, if you're working on electrical equipment, to work with one hand behind your back hmm. so you don't complete a circuit. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's going to basically dissipate into the water. Ultimately, is what's going to happen. I mean, I could see a scenario, and I, I don't really know much about like welding, but I know in in one of the types of welding, it's an electrical charge that basically melts the metal. To right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like if there was a a charge run through it, and maybe somebody's hands were on something they could get like kind of melted yeah yeah if the metal became that hot in that localized of a place but it would more likely just burn the layers of skin off as opposed to like meld with it yeah because it would have to heat really quickly come into contact really quickly and then everything would have to cool really quickly well you are sitting in the Chesapeake Bay (laughs) (laughs) in October yeah so I don't know. I, I'm going to mark this one as a really cool story 
And I also think that a lot of people, when they watch movies, they take that, even if it says it's a documentary movie or a docudrama or whatever, they take that as the story instead of actually looking up the facts and saying, okay, well, they said this in the movie, but that wouldn't be possible because of this. They just say, oh, well, this is the Philadelphia experiment. This is what happened. And that's dangerous for anybody to just blindly accept that. I mean, if you want a good good cover story, you know, the military is conducting these experiments that were still classified at the time. I feel like it's possible that... They heard this and they just like let people run with it. They're like, mm-hmm. no, no, we didn't do that, you know. But they didn't deny it too hard. Yeah, you know, like let them let them go off on this. Let them think that we're doing this while we're really doing this other experiment, or maybe something that failed, maybe something that was successful. I don't know. Red herring, rain. Yeah, totally, totally could be. All right. Well, I guess that about wraps it up for us. You want to tell them what they need to know? Yeah. As always, if you like what you hear you want to hear more of it let us know let us know what you want to hear about and how you want us to do it how badly you want us to mispronounce things if your name is dorcas please let us know and if that's not how you pronounce it we <laughs> send in like a recording of you saying it uh and you can do that at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com you can like subscribe rate comment on whatever your podcast platform of choice is you can find us on TikTok and YouTube, as we discussed before. You can check out what we're selling at CrypticPodcastStore.com and check out Parabox. They've always got good stuff. And don't forget to check out the new true crime episodes that will be coming out, Sinister Souls. And we will be back. We have an interview with a doctor about Morgellons disease on Wednesday. So I'm going to try and get that out for you guys on Thursday for the after hours after party. And we'll see. I'm not sure how long the interview is going to go. I'm going to try and get it produced. If not, we'll drop something on Thursday evening. But anyway, that's all we've got for you tonight. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. <laughs> <laughs>